Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. It is the summer solstice. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, Startup Nation author, Call Me Back podcast host, friend of the podcast, Commentary Inc. board member, and all-around great guy dan senor hi dan welcome hey to john and yeah, and live live guest at one point at your palm beach podcast and a big a, moment one of uh, one of our only live guests ever and you were there in part to talk about what we are going to ask you to talk about today because what we talked about in palm beach has now happened which is that the israeli government the jury-rigged israeli government uh led by naftali bennett and yet your Lapid has collapsed or has basically committed suicide. Um, and uh, so for an interim period, uh, Bennett has stepped down as prime minister and Lapid. Uh, these are two heads of two minor parties. Uh, Lapid will become interim prime minister until elections are held in October. Why so late, you may ask, because of the Jewish holidays uh of rosh hashanah and yom kippur and uh various other things that 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 mean that they have to stretch out until the end of october so dan uh though everybody was predicting the demise of this coalition from the minute that the coalition was formed then it really is a fascinating and unprecedented experiment in governance in israel um what actually happened here is something that uh, nobody in America really understands and that represents an unbelievable act of political four-dimensional chess gamesmanship by the, the, the Israeli politician non-pare uh, Bibi Netanyahu. So maybe can you lay this out for everybody, what happened? Because it's kind of crazy, a law that nobody even knew existed that was coming up for a completely pro forma renewal has yeah. turned out to be the weapon that BB used to engineer the downfall of this government that has kept him out of power. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we should we should at some point get into talk a little bit about the lessons of this this model of government because there's nothing like it that's been tried certainly in Israel and anywhere else in the Western world that I know of. Uh, in terms of such such a broad rainbow coalition, but in terms of what where we are now, what actually brought the government down, just to get um, very technical, but it's important, is there is a law in Israel that uh, handles the regulations and rules around how Israeli citizens living in Judea and Samaria are respected under treated under Israeli law, meaning that there is military authority in the West Bank in Judea and Samaria, but there are hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers, citizens of Israel who also live in Judea, Judea and Samaria. And there's a law that that basically applies Israeli civilian law to them, the way their taxes are collected, the way their health care is provided, the way they vote in elections, et cetera, et cetera. That law no one really pays attention to, but technically that law must be extended every five years, the way the, the statute is written. So every five years, there's actually a vote in the Knesset. It's typically just a pro forma vote. It's not controversial. Most Everyone on the right votes for it. Everyone on the center right votes for it. Even the center and the center left typically votes for it. The, the parties that don't vote for it typically are the hard left and certainly the Arab parties because it is in a sense, being viewed as it could be interpreted as blessing the occupation. But anyone concerned about just the normal functioning of Israel as it stands now until there's a permanent resolution with the Palestinians recognizes that those Israeli citizens living in Judea and Samaria should be able to live as regular Israeli citizens under Israeli law. That law, the five-year extension, is up right now. And the the uh, the opposition led by by former prime minister benjamin netanyahu has been looking for opportunities to create to sort of exploit the chasms within this coalition because it's such an ideologically diverse coalition and break the coalition apart he's been poking and poking and he identified some opportunities that failed uh over the past year he he wasn't able to do it but on this particular issue he was able to do it because you normally don't have a coalition led by someone from the hard right 
Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. His party, Yamina, Yamina in Hebrew, literally means like the translation is is translation to English is further right, like a party that's going to move further right, even further right than Likud. It was his party was founded to be on over at Likud's right flank. So you had on the one hand someone like Bennett and his allies, Ayala Chaked and others within the coalition who were obviously going to vote for the extension uh, of this law. And then you had the an Arab party, the Ram party, a Muslim party in the coalition. You had the Merits party, hard left. You know, so you had hard left and Arab parties in the coalition that would never vote for it. Now, Bennett and many of his allies in the government just assumed. And by the way, Lapid was was prepared to vote for it because, as I said, the center and even the center left don't have a problem with it. We should explain that Lapid's party mm-hmm. is actually three times the size of Bennett's, of party. Bennett's party. Bennett Bennett was prime minister with a party that until six weeks ago or something had a grand total of six seats out of the 120 in the Knesset, but Lapid's party. Totally unprecedented in Israeli politics. Again, typically in Israeli politics, historically, the party that the, the prime minister of the country is the leader of the party with the greatest number of seats in the Knesset, Right. And or or in the government. Yeah, so you right. would have like the Labour Party with 20, 30 seats. The leader of the Labour Party builds a coalition and becomes prime minister. Benjamin Netanyahu for years, prime minister, you know, Likud would have 20, 30 seats. They were the largest party within the coalition. Bennett, to your point, John, had six seats, whereas Lapid's, seat, Lapid's party had multiples of that in his party. Yeah, like 18, right? right? I mean, he had like, right. so he had three times the number of seats, but he was not acceptable enough to the parties of the even further right uh, to Bennett. And so this thing happened where Bennett with six seats ends up as head of the coalition. And then about six weeks ago, he, three different members of his party, of Bennett's party, of Bennett's party, Yamina resigned or, or, I mean, I don't quite know. Or they left the government. Yeah. They well, they well it's important to say mindset. that this whole coalition, because Lapid could not form a government, even with his party that that had a large number of seats, Lapid goes to Bennett and says, let's form a partnership and we will rotate as prime ministers. Then I get to take your six, seven seats, depending on when it was, add them to my party and we'll cobble together a few others and then we can actually get to 61 we can form a government right 61 is the majority because there are 120 seats in the Knesset. so bennett had incredible negotiating leverage in this situation because lapid could not form a government without him so bennett said fine we will form a partnership we will be rotating prime ministers we'll each serve as prime minister but i'll be first bennett said i'll be the first prime minister and you'll come in after me and and lapid agreed to that which then created this Bizarre situation with Bennett, leader of one of the smallest parties in the Knesset, becoming prime minister of Israel, which on the one hand was very impressive. And I've had guests on my own podcast, people like Mika Goodman, for instance, who've marveled at at uh, what an accomplishment this was and a, a great moment of political compromise that these very ideologically diverse leaders could come together and form a government and and it was it was something to be studied. And I think there's some some truth to what Mika Goodman and others have argued. But the but at the end of the day, you also recognize Bennett was an incredibly weak prime minister because he had no political base within his own government. He had nowhere to turn within his own government for support. So he was constantly negotiating not only with members of his own party, which as you point out, John started to pull back and say they were not going to be part of the government anymore, but he. But he had a very he was constantly negotiating with the Muslim party and left wing parties. And so it ideologically just became unworkable, which many people predicted. It was just a matter of when I I, for one, did not expect this to be the moment. I thought there were many other fault line moments that would have broken up this coalition. And it didn't up to now. And it was impressive that it didn't. But this is this is a bizarre situation. So basically, Bennett had to resign in a weird way on principle, which is to say he had to quit because by quitting and ending the government with this caretaker government, that law that had to be affirmatively passed next week or the citizenship rights of 
Israelis living on the West Bank would have been imperiled. Right. The government had to fall so that that law would become would automatically yeah. renewed. So, so, so that's the explain. genius of what Bibi did here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so let me just uh, so j- just because because it's a, it's a little technical. So the law says every five years. The law has to be formally extended. The Knesset has to form has to vote on it, and it's normally a formality. If the Knesset doesn't vote on it, then it's automatic. There's an automatic six month extension built into it. Bennett assumed he would have the votes for it, either in his own coalition or since the opposition is dominated by the right, of course the right is going to support this. Of course the opposition will support it because they're supported by the settlers. To vote against this is effectively to vote against the settler movement. And what Netanyahu engineered was, no, 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 Prime Minister Bennett, don't take these right-wing votes in the Knesset, for gr- in the opposition, for granted just because they are they are aligned ideologically on protecting the settlers. If it means over this vote, as a process matter, we can bring down your government. That's the priority. And the settlers will understand it because they're sympathetic to bringing down your government. So do not count on on the right wing parties in the opposition to give you cover on this vote. So then Bennett and Lapid, in the most bizarre situation over these last few days, go into negotiations with the Muslim party and the hard left party in their own government, begging them to vote for a bill that will give protections to Israeli settlers and the, and the ROM party and the, and the other and other left-wing parties factions within the coalition are like, are you kidding me? We cannot vote for this. So, so he, I mean, it was like, so he had nowhere to go. And, um, and it, it really did. I mean, you know, Ron Dermer, who is on my podcast this week, but a, but a couple months ago he was he was on my podcast. And so he Ron predicted- Dermer was Israel's ambassador. Is an American who made Aliyah and is was Israel's ambassador to the United States and one of the closest states, Seriatim, to Natan Sharansky and then to Bibi. Right. So, I mean, he's he's Netanyahu's alter ego, and yeah. he tried to be objective in in this podcast conversation I did with him, and he was, he was analytical, but. He obviously clearly, like Netanyahu, is very resentful of this coalition for understandable reasons, because they argue that that Bennett in the last election made clear he would never sit with Lapid, that he would sit with Bibi, but he would not sit with Lapid in a new government. And then, of course, he 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 didn't sit with Netanyahu and he did uh, form a government with Lapid, a government that would ultimately make Lapid prime minister. And if but, Bennett had sat with Netanyahu, Net- Netanyahu would have been able to form the government because Bibi had, I think... 59 uh, seats but he right he, he if, if, if Yamina had joined 59 yeah if yeah. Yamina had if, if Bennett had joined Netanyahu Netanyahu would would still be prime minister but what what Ron Dermer argued in that conversation was at the end of the day this is a coalition while the Mika Goodmans of this world and others will marvel at the incredible feat of political compromise uh that was that was necessary um and that was accomplished to form this government at the end of the day this government was about one thing which was opposition to one man it was a coalition that that whose only fuel and 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 almost like uh links links among the various factions within the party were were hardened by opposition to one man being in power and that was Netanyahu and once once that that is nothing new is not in the frame. Ideologically, there's problem after problem after problem and internal tension after internal tension after internal tension. And there's no way a government that is so not just unaligned, but actually an open conflict on so many core issues. There's no way a government like that can survive. And I, I actually think good Mika Goodman and Ron Dermer were both right. Right. I mean, I think, I think that this government accomplished more than even some of its biggest skeptics like Dermer um, would have predicted, right? They, they passed a two-year budget and passing these budgets in Israel are very hard to do, uh, even hard to do for, for a government that's ideologically aligned and they passed a two-year budget. So that was impressive. Two, Israel had a really rough last few months. I mean, it's one of these periods where where Jerusalem Day, which is often the source of a lot of tension, we could, a, lot, a lot of these marches, in the old city, in the Jewish quarter, that some would characterize as as provocative by you know marches hard- by set by 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 right wing Israelis yeah, who are ce- celebrating Israel. the 
unification of Jerusalem. unification of Jerusalem, and then march into Arab neighborhoods and right. go yeah, 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 basically. So hardcore, so hardcore religious Zionists uh, protest in a way that some characterize. I think it's overstated. Uh, that's that's provocative and um, can inflame a tense situation, and it happened to overlap with Ramadan. Uh, so it, it was like a powder keg uh, waiting to happen. At the same time, you had the street violence, which we know about, the stabbings and shootings uh, in Israeli towns and the spike of a different kind of terrorism than Israel has um, typically experienced. And so things got really hot uh, over the last few months. And this coalition basically held together despite that. I, I actually thought that was I thought some kind of domestic flare up between Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs, which you saw around Ramadan and Jerusalem Day, or another Gaza flare-up, another Israeli-Gaza war, similar to what uh, uh, Israel experienced in the final days of, final weeks of Netanyahu's last government. Uh, I thought those would have been one of the dynamics, that, that would be the dynamic that would break up this government, primarily because the Ram party, the Muslim party, would say there's no way we can be part of this coalition, Mr. Bennett, what, when you're taking such a hard line, because Bennett was pretty hard line, actually. Some would argue even more hard line than Netanyahu in dealing with these terror threats in terms of the tactics he was willing to use. I thought an issue like that or the budget would break up the government. I would have never imagined this sleepy law that literally gets re-extended every five years as though like and no one's paying attention would be the would be the would be the issue that broke up um broke up the government but it did and that, like i said netanyahu's been looking for these these pinpricks to kind of test the the whether or not the 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 ideological tensions could break and he found it so look if you love politics i just have to say that if you if you love politics as a spectator sport you know i mean you're watching you know i don't know who you're watching you're watching michael joy i mean you're watching a man who is better at the raw functioning of politics in Bibi Netanyahu than any other person alive on this planet. Nobody could have predicted this because he's the only one who saw it on the chessboard and figured out that this he could make this move. Now, here's what's interesting. We go to October. Bibi knows, and this is also this is the thing in the background of why this happened now. Polling in the last two or three weeks has shown a surge Bibi's numbers when when Israel when when you see polls of 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 Israel, they calculate how many seats each party would get if the election were held today, as opposed to percentages the way we do. You know, that Biden would get forty three percent. So you see it party by party. So Likud Bibi's party is back in these polls at thirty six, double the number of any other party's representation. However, if you tally together the kind of government that Likud could form based on all the political analysis, even with this surge, because I think he got 30 seats or 29 seats in the yeah. last election. Yeah. So he would have been back to 36, which is what he was at when he formed his government in 2017 or whatever. He still can't form a government. He's at 59. He's yeah. not at 61. So um, we're back in this amazing situation in which uh, there were Bibi's government, there were four elections in which no, no one could get to an outright majority from 2019 to 2021. Four elections. So Bibi just remained prime minister until finally this thing was cobbled together to 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 take it away from him and you could see the same thing happening in october of 2022 maybe well uh right so the, the election slated for october uh the question is i mean there 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 are a few inputs that that you have to consider right now you're right based on the public polling now now not to get again super technical here but under israeli ele election law you 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 need so so you get you get a, a seat for every percentage of the vote you get, but there's a threshold of three point two five percent, meaning three point two five percent gets you about four seats. If you get three point two five percent of the national vote, you get about I think four seats uh, in the in the Knesset. 
if you fall below 3.25, if you get 3% or you get 2.5%, you get zero. In other words, you, you it's not like you can get one or two seats. The, the law says you have to have a minimum of 3.25% of the vote. And with that, you get your four seats and then you can build above that. But if you get less than that, then your seats get reapportioned um, to other parties. There is a push right now. The leader, I think, of of United Torah Judaism, one of the one of the right uh, wing Orthodox groups, Orthodox Jewish religious parties uh, in 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 Israeli politics, is is apparently introducing a bill that would bring the the threshold down to one point two five percent, which would make it easier for seats for parties that just win one or two seats to still get their seats. Netanyahu is from what I understand, behind all of this. So there's there's some move to make sure that parties on the right that get fewer seats don't lose those seats. So that's the first thing. The second thing to look, the two people to watch are Gidon Saar and uh, Benny Gantz. So Gidon, Saar's, Gidon Saar was a member These of These are Likud. both Likudniks. Well, Gidon Saar. Well, not, not, yeah, not, yeah, not yeah, Benny Gantz, but yeah. so he was actually Saar. speaker of the Knesset, Gidon Saar. Yeah, and he's and he was a longtime Likud uh, Knesset member, you know, been involved with Likud politics for some 20 years, broke off in opposition to Netanyahu, started a new party called New Hope. Um, he has six seats right now in the Knesset. If Netanyahu can figure out a way to bring him over to the Likud. Right now, he's saying he will not join the Likud. He will not fold back into the Likud. He will not partner with Likud. He will basically not enable a path for Netanyahu to return to prime minister. I'm not sure that's his last, his final word, uh, because if you look at the polling, he runs the risk of actually falling below the threshold and losing all his seats or at least polling worse than than he currently has. So there may, and he's currently justice minister, and I don't think he wants to go from being justice minister, prominent role in the government, to having nothing. Um, so so he still may be in play. Uh, so John, when you talk about that the Netanyahu's still not north of 60 seats, it's, it's assuming that Gidon Saar doesn't break and come over. The other one is Benny Gantz, current defense minister, uh, leader of Kahol Levan, the blue and white party. And Gantz who feels that he got screwed by Netanyahu in, 19, in like, 20, like, every, like everybody else in Israeli politics. 2020, 2021, where he and Netanyahu worked on a rotation agreement where Netanyahu would serve as prime minister in, 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 the, in the first year. And then in November of 21, he would hand over the premiership to Gantz. But in June of 21, Netanyahu figured a way to break up the government, go to new elections, denying Gantz's opportunity to ever be prime minister. So, Gantz hated Netanyahu and feel, felt that Netanyahu completely double-crossed him. The only person Gantz hates more today than Bibi Netanyahu is Yair Lapid. And Gantz has eight seats. He's part of the Bennett government. He does not want to be part of a Lapid government. And according to public reporting, there have been intermediaries between Netanyahu and Gantz meeting. So there is a world in which Gantz moves over to the opposition and helps Netanyahu form a government. They could try again to... A form of rotation. So there are still, I mean, yes, Netanyahu is not at north of 61 in public polling, but there are still a lot of cards to turn over. And Netanyahu is negotiating with Gantz's people, with, with Gidon Saar's people. There's this push to reduce the threshold to empower smaller parties on the right to have more representation. So I, I still think there's a lot of maneuvering uh, to, to play out over the next couple months. That could help Abe? Yeah, I have a question. <clears throat> what is the status throughout all this? of Bibi's court cases. Yeah. Um, and is it safe to say, as it looks, that the those issues have not hampered him at all in in his sort of fight back to 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 power? The cases are dragging on. I mean I, I saw Netanyahu in February in in Jerusalem, uh met with him and at the time he was focused on three things which were, which seemed to be in this order, one, figuring out how to engineer his return, two, working on his memoir. So he's working on a book, which I actually think will be um, pretty interesting. He, he hasn't, he hasn't uh, penned a, a book in something like 30 years, uh, a little less than 30 years. Uh, his last book was Place Among the Nations, which was, which was very good. And this is, this is really his, his, this book is going to be his life story. Uh, and, um, and then he was working on the legal, his legal cases and the legal cases seem to be taking up. This is just my impression. It's nothing he said to me. I'm just, was observing just my sense of the situation. We're taking up the least amount of his time. 
because they were dragging on. One of the cases in particular is, is hit a bunch of um, roadblocks from a from the prosecutor standpoint. And uh, and I so I I you know they're they're not getting the attention they once were. And I think Netanyahu or the people around him at least believe that if he becomes prime minister, these cases really 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 slow down. There was a push to get a um, a bill attached to. I forget which bill. I think it was the bill that would dissolve the parliament, dissolve the Knesset, that would make it virtually impossible for someone who's under indictment and fighting um, these kinds of charges in court to serve as prime minister. Obviously, this bill was designed to target Netanyahu. So it would it would make it impossible for Bibi to serve. The bill failed um, to pass. So I I don't think his... I mean, we, this is not a, this is not my judgment on the situation. I just, I just said an analytical point. I don't think the legal cases are an obstacle to his return. I mean, they're also not a legal obstacle. They're, they may not be a political obstacle to his return because the longer these go on, uh, the more the holes in the cases become apparent. They are, they are weak. I mean, right. they are they are weak, weak cases. And I, I would be perfectly happy to say otherwise. If I believed otherwise, I hold, you know, I'm not here holding a brief for Bibi, but um, a lot was going on that led to the to the decision to prosecute him for this. A lot of the politics that were going on here and the pressure that was put on uh, Mandelblit, the attorney general who allowed the cases to go forward, um, that is very hard to separate out from the fact that he had been prime minister for 12 years and that the entire political establishment, including a lot of the political establishment on the right, uh, was sick of him, and and he had made so many enemies and wanted to see the back of him. But this will be, maybe you know, with the exception of Trump getting reelected in twenty twenty five, maybe one of the single most extraordinary uh, resuscitations in political life. Well, I, I will say uh, just two 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 quick points. One. Uh, he is trying right now to Netanyahu is trying right now. I think it's difficult. He's trying right now. So, so, so basically the bill that determines the dissolution of the Knesset, each side, the government has its own bill to do it. And the opposition has its bill. So it's basically on whose terms will the government be dissolved now under the opposition's bill on the Netanyahu's preference is that he, that, that there's, there's not a caretaker government led by Lapid, which is what will happen if, if, the government, the Knesset's dissolved, caretaker government led by Lapid for the next few months until an election. Netanyahu's preference is that a new government is formed, a new caretaker government, uh, but a new government is formed with the existing Knesset. So if Netanyahu can cobble together 61 seats within the existing Knesset, so force, force the vote of new com- no confidence, and then a replacement government is formed that he leads. Now, presumably they still go to elections under that situation, but at least he's the interim lame duck prime minister when they go to elections. Now, why is that important? From what I understand, it's very important to Netanyahu. When he was prime minister during those four failed or four elections that failed to lead to a government that you cited earlier, John, he was always the interim prime minister. He was always the lame duck prime minister during those interim periods when Israel bounced, you know, uh, hobbled from, hobbled from, from election to election. He so he still had power, and that power mattered to the religious parties and the religious groups in Israel and the settlers because he still could apportion. He could deal with appropriations of funding and and all sorts of other issues. So it mattered to those parties that Netanyahu was still in the seat, and he was able to use that to keep them loyal to him. If he's not the interim prime minister when he's running for prime minister which means he's not able to form a government after the if he's not able to form a government after the next election then he doesn't have that much uh, some of these folks are saying you know what we'll give you another shot you're our guy to try and run again because we think you you're the best shot at winning but if you fail again that you can't form a government what do you have to offer us you're not the interim prime minister that that is there holding things together until the next election you can still take care of us so him having even that interim power is important to him Anyway, this is an incredibly revelatory conversation. Uh, Israeli politics is unbelievably interesting for anybody who's interested in politics. It's important to note two things, which is that one thing that Bennett said uh, yesterday as he was 
saying goodbye to his prime ministership is that one of the things that he was proudest of was in in handling uh, the American the relationship uh, with the United States with the new Biden administration wanting to re-enter the Iran deal and Israel opposing re-entry in the Iran deal in a way that did not jeopardize the Israeli-U.S. relationship. Obviously, a strong dig at Bibi for for being so crosswise of Obama during the Obama presidency. But um, an interesting point, nonetheless, though, you know, I have to say that in my general estimation, uh, of course, the minute that the um, war in Ukraine started, any idea that that there was going to be a JCPOA, as we can see this week with right. the revival of new sanctions and things that Tony Blinken has been saying and all that, that this was a fool's errand to begin with trying to restart the JCPOA, given what Iranians were going to ask for, and the fact that Iran is now hurtling toward uh, nuclearization. But it's an interesting point. Bennett Bennett did not discredit himself in this year as prime minister. I yeah, mean, and I, and I, he's yeah. young, and he's yeah. young, and Israeli. Poly- he's not that young. No, no, he is young. I, you know, uh, I don't know where he goes. That's but it's the problem. Not like, so, so but I, it's look, not like he's disgraced himself. It's he's not, not like he goes off like Golda Meir into the wilderness at the end I, of her political career. I, I would say that, um, but, but you know, some friends of mine who are allies in Israel of Netanyahu who have had made the point when they knew Bennett was, uh, you know, a little over a year ago was contemplating, was deciding between joining Netanyahu in a government or forming his own with Lapid. They, they argued, and I was skeptical at the time, but they may have been right. They argued at the time that if Bennett is, is the kingmaker for Netanyahu's next government, and he's always positioned himself as to the right of Netanyahu and has a party that's ideologically to the right of, the, of Netanyahu. He really becomes the heir on the right to Netanyahu. He's the best position to to um, build and expand and grow the, the right in Israel after Netanyahu. And if he partners with Lapid and the Ram party, you know, you know, the Muslim party, he'll never be able to inherit the right. And he's so he's gambling you know, what they thought was at most he could be prime minister for a year or a year and change and then kind of be done because he will have compromised himself versus a longer term game, which was to, you know, to swallow partnering with BB for some period of time and then and then ultimately succeed him. And, you know, may, he may have been he may have had a longer, you know, he in 2019, he got he didn't meet the threshold in the tw- in yeah. that, those elections. He was he was wiped out of parliament and that could easily happen again. I will say one other thing, John. And, Okay. Is one other enormous accomplishment which we haven't spent time on is you know many on the left and then the media and academia call Israel an apartheid state and and you know if Israel is an apartheid state they're really bad at it because this government was formed also by another kingmaker as we've talked about which was the leader of an Arab Muslim party it is pretty extraordinary and in in an, in Israel in a Jewish state the key to forming a government was a Muslim, an Arab Muslim party that basically they worked pretty well together for for about a year, which is extraordinary. And there are some who are going to say that that the failure of this government has proved that that was unworkable, that an Israeli Arab party cannot be part of the Israeli government. And my only response to that is it is not true that an Israeli Arab party cannot be part of an Israeli government. It means that an Israeli Arab party probably can't be part of a government that's being held together with a one-seat margin. So if an Israeli Arab party is going to be part of a government, they should probably have a little more cushion, 65, 66, 67 seats in the government, which would allow the Arab party to sit out certain votes and the government not, not fall. So the lesson isn't that Arab parties in Israel can't be part of the political process at that level. It's just if if they're going to choose to participate, they can't be holding the whole government together. Look, BB's 72 years old. If he becomes prime minister again, we're looking at a race in 2024 in the United States between an 82-year-old man and a 79-year-old man. So who's to say Bennett made a mistake? Like right. BB's, you know, BB's a spring chicken. Uh, by, by some of these calculations. And so the only thing that is preventing him from being prime minister forever or really interfered or interceded with his continuing prime ministership were these legal cases. And if they go away or he is found innocent or whatever, um, there's no stopping him. At the very least, the one thing you can say about 
Naftali Bennett is that when the history books are written, he will be in that list of people who served as prime minister of Israel. And there just aren't that many of them. Right. Right. You know, I mean, there are some that nobody remembers, like Levi Eshkol. Uh, har- hardly anybody remembers the name of Levi Eshkol, but, you know. Yeah, he was prime minister every... during the Six-Day War. I know he was, but he is yeah. like right, the, one know. of the most obscure figures in, in, in Israel's history. And everybody else, anybody who was even mildly literate in Israeli history knows. And right. so there is Bennett. And and I guess Lapid, too, will find his name. Yeah. In the person that, to watch now, list. I think, is, I mean, Benny Gantz, could be part of a future government. Gidorn Saar could be a part of a future government. The person I think to really watch who's going to be super a key player in, in where things shake out is Ayala Chaked, who's the who's uh, who's the interior minister now, a top lieutenant to uh, Bennett, the number two. Uh, worked for Bibi, like Bennett, like many people who ultimately run against Bibi. Uh, worked for Bibi years ago when he was in the opposition, and. Um, she she was in the Likud. She could come back to the Likud, um, and I think she will be a force in the, in the right uh, going forward, wh- whether Bibi's prime minister or not. So, Dan Sinor, as ever, as always, thank you so much for your 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 insight and your analysis. And everybody, go and subscribe to Dan's Call Me Back podcast. You can hear uh, musings on these subjects this week with Ron Dermer. Ron Dermer. Ron Speaking Dermer. of which, Ron Dermer. That's yeah. Right. It's Ron Dermer's plan for how Biden can get the Nobel Peace Prize by engineering a formal peace agreement with Saudi Arabia. So thanks. Dan's going to Dan is going to do the thing that people used to do on Johnny Carson when they were big stars and not hang around for the uh, later segments because they have more (laughs) important things to do. So with that, we will say goodbye to him. And I will start talking about the X chair because that is. What I have to do now is talk about By the, the way, X John, chair. my dream yes. for a future guest appearance is I get to read, do the ad read for the X chair. But oh, not today. Yeah, oh, yeah, you are not on. Today. Not today. You are on. Not today. All right. All right. Good seeing you guys. Not today. Great line, by the way, from Top Gun Maverick when Tom Cruise says not today. So look, many of us spend more time every day in our office chair than in our cars and beds. That's why it is so important to invest in the right chair, to spend those hours with the right level of support and comfort to get the most productivity out of your day. And that's why I'm talking about the X chair. You know, you've heard me say it before, the patented dynamic variable lumbar offers the ultimate customized support. You know that it can heat you up or cool you down with its special LMX temperature, uh, temperature regulation. And now, thanks to X-Chair's new FS360 armrest, you can even adjust Joe's armrest to the perfect position. All those unique X-Chair features help the hours fly by at your desk. So go to xchaircommentary.com. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair for $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. You can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. xchaircommentary.com. Now, um... Our July-August issue is up at commentary.org. We are very proud of it. It's a double issue, and it is almost twice the length of the ordinary issue. And uh, the lead article is from our own Noah Rothman's forthcoming book coming out in 10 days. Two weeks, 14 days from today. Right. Uh, The Rise of the New Puritans. And we have called this piece, our lead article, You Are What You Don't Eat, How Food Became Politicized. And it is one of the best sheer reads, delightful summer read, as we have hit the summer solstice, just simply in terms of sheer entertainment value. You're not going to get much better from the crushing morosity journal of all crushing morosity journals than you are from Noah Rothman's You Are What You Don't Eat, How Food Became Politicized. And so we wanted to give Noah some time to talk about the article and whet your appetite, not only for our issue, but for his book, which you should go to Amazon right now and pre-order. And you will want to pre-order after we have this conversation. Noah, we're being told that people should eat bugs. We're being told that we should not eat at certain food trucks and restaurants and, and, and places that win awards for their culinary excellence because they are engaging not in the manufacture and presentation of delicious food, but in monstrous acts of cultural appropriation and genocide. Can you dilate upon this for the commentary 
podcast audience. Sure. Thank you. First of all, that was a very generous introduction. I appreciate it. And uh, all my thanks to you and the, and the team at the magazine for putting this giant excerpt out there and making it the lead article. I hope everybody enjoys it. Uh, the the subtitle of the book is Fighting Back Against Progressives' War on Fun. So it couldn't have a tone that was sort of dour. It has to be irreverent. And I did strike, go for irreverence. Uh, insofar as I achieved it, I don't know. But that was my intention. So yes, the article opens with a series of restaurants, a burrito place, you know, burrito food truck in the Pacific Northwest, a very well-rated restaurant in Chicago, uh, an athletic store that was uh, selling athleisure apparel and also faux broth uh, and other, you know, South Asian treats. And all of them um, were dismantled by a, a group of individuals who are consumed with idea, this idea of cultural appropriation. But cultural appropriation was the weapon that they used to affect what were essentially professional jealousies. Um, very many of these individuals worked for these people and or consumed their food and appreciated it because they were good. That's a part of, part of the problem here is they were doing things that were good, well-liked, um, well-respected, not because they were flippant or being... Uh, uh, mo mocking these cultures or even making a lot of money off of it, which is another thing about appropriation. They were achieving and establishing boundaries that you're supposed to observe, that they're supposed to observe. And that has a very, um, you know, an element of it that is how societies function and organize themselves. However, what the effect of this program was is to rob you of something that you enjoyed, something you like. And we see that throughout the course of this chapter on food, which, as you say, can be broken down into three major themes, meat, bugs, and racism. Uh, those, those are the things that consume food eaters today on the puritanical left who want to create and establish boundaries for you. Uh, first of all, just to meet briefly before we go into the fun stuff, which is generally bugs. I, the bug stuff really, I enjoyed that quite a bit. But so Ultimately, the arguments against meat, which are scientifically dubious, but nevertheless have created uh, a consensus around them on the puritanical left, is that uh, the problem with meat consumption is twofold. One, it destroys the environment. Um, and the second is that it's, it's unhealthful. Neither of these two claims generally have scientific support. They are taken at face value. They have become maxims and constructs that are unassailable and inviolable among a particular caste of, of people who adhere to them. But if you scratch the surface of their arguments, they become moral arguments very quickly. Uh, the, or, the environmental argument against meat is that it is a, an affront to the Eden into which we have been born. Uh, it decimates the local environment. You have to just destroy forests and you, you know, poison the atmosphere. And that is a, a sin. Likewise, making yourself into a burden on your community is a sin, uh, a sin throughout for time immemorial. Uh, which is so you make yourself a burden on your community your by having health consequences right. because of eating too much protein. Which the conclusory and, arguments, by the way, around those are very yeah. the confidence interval is very limited. Right, and the and the environmental destruction is due to deforestation in order to create arable land for cows and animals to eat, and because of farting. And correct, and because. But we need to explain the oh, farting. Well, that's you produce because, nothing, and I'm using the word farting uh, in order to make fun of the incredible humorlessness of which we are told that the danger posed to the world comes from cows farting. Right, because you they produce methane, which is measurable. We all produce methane. It's measurable, and it's a greenhouse. Speak gas. for yourself. <laughs> it's a greenhouse gas. It is, but if you actually look into the data around it, you could you know, uh, Thanos away, every cow that in America that produces for dairy and meat, it would have an extremely negligible impact on the amount of emissions that we produce. Likewise, in the developing world, it's a negligible amount of, of methane. And it's also an assault on how the developing world, you know, develops. You tell a subsistence farming ca a cow herder in India that he's destroying the planet. He's unlikely to take your uh, admonitions very seriously. Um, but again, it's this is a this is a, a not a not a convincing argument for what is ultimately a moral argument, especially when you talk about cellular meat. This prospect of developing artificial um, protein grown in a lab that mimics uh, organic meat, and, and it, 
presents you with a stark moral choice. One of the people who we researched and quoted in this piece, which is that you can choose now to not harm animals. And the 16th, 16th, 17th century Puritans uh, made advances, legal advances and statute against blood sports involving animals. They had a real big, hard time with this. It was an, a moral assault. And we adopt the language of morality when we talk about this stark choice that people would be prevent, presented with. Um, all of whom deny, by the way, whenever somebody, whenever they're in mixed company and all these tenants that are unchallenged within them are presented to people who are even remotely skeptical of them, then they disappear. It's as though they never existed. This conversation is supposed to exist among the converted entirely and not to involve you. And then when it does, they think you're crazy. But it's all documented. It's in UN documents. It's in you know congressional debates. All of this stuff is easy to produce and promote. And this dovetails very much with bug eating because insect consumption, anamorphagy, is supposed to be another answer to this one, especially the climate problem. And very, But once again, it involves morality very quickly because the way they talk about activists who are continually and forever promoting the idea that we need to transition to having a much larger share of insects in our daily diet, um, we'll never talk about it as though it's good. To talk about it as though it's good cheapens the experience because the experience is not sustenance. It's not an enjoyable meal. It is saving the world. You are contributing to a profound social good, even if it sucks, especially if it sucks. You're not supposed to enjoy this. It's not about enjoyment. In fact, if you do enjoy it, you're kind of missing the point of this exercise, which is self-sacrifice, right. self-deprivation, and displays of duress and labor in the pursuit and promotion of a social value. And that is a theme that echoes throughout the entire book. It's present in this chapter, which is only part of a chapter on prudence, but it, it is echoed throughout the entirety of the, of, of, uh, the New Puritans. Hey, can you... Uh touch on the racist part because of course then there's a, a point i want to make about it yes so the third aspect of this which you talked about briefly is sort of this overarching structural idea of cultural appropriation which is very difficult to define a lot of people have spent a lot of energy and spilled a lot of ink in the effort to create a working definition of what this phenomenon is it's supposed to be the co-option and commercialization of cultural traditions that you were not born into, cheapening them thereby. Um, but as we saw in the beginning of this chapter and throughout this book, it is aimed not at people who are cheapening these traditions, but really expanding the relevance and influence. And this has produced a whole lot of anguish and heartache. And to go through this in this chapter, there's apple pie is culturally appropriative because apples come from in, in um, Central Asia, who were brought to the American continent by Spanish conquistadors who desire, who wanted to exploit um, the, the the native land. It's, it has sugar in it, which is a product of slavery. And, you know, it's uh, half a dozen other reasons why that, you know, happy confection is actually a crime. Yogurt is Orientalist. Asian fusion cuisine cannot exist because you cannot adulterate such a cuisine without ruining it. This torment is being imposed on you in ways that are not at all productive and really aren't your torment to endure. It's a, something that it has to be forced on you, and it is being forced on you. You're must, you must be made to care. But the intention of these artists, and this is again throughout this book, the intention of the artists who create this work is hard to miss unless you're intent on missing it. Okay, well, wait, Noah. So let's just go narratively, and then maybe you make your point. Okay, so the, the let's give the Lastly, the most amazing story. I, no, let okay, me sure, do, sure, the, sure. the story you tell because I want I want you to go specific. Okay? okay, you tell a story about a restaurant called Fat Rice, right? Okay, in Chicago, the most universally beloved restaurant in Chicago, according to Chicago Magazine in 2015, run by a guy named Abe Conlon, specializing in cuisine from the Chinese Autonomous Region of Macau. Um, in the summer of 2020, you write, the restaurant's proprietors sought to convey their support for the anti-police protests that erupted across the country with some Instagram activism. So the restaurant posted a few anodyne messages, images of protests and a message. We remain dedicated to our values. We oppose all forms of racism and we stand with those fighting for justice and equality. 
A former employee savaged the restaurant for what he deemed its insufficient gesture of support for racial justice. You're not going to say hashtag Black Lives Matter, even though you take from black culture all the time, said the employee. With that, the dam burst. A handful of former employees took to social media to allege that Conlon was abusive, his business practices were racist. The New York Times described the chef as the restaurant business archetype, a tantrum-prone chef who rules by fear and bullying, and said the outrage that was consuming his business showed a growing intolerance for a type of verbal mistreatment that has long been accepted as routine in this country. Uh, They don't give any cultural context to the origins of their ingredients, wrote a former employee who was outraged over Fat Fat Rice's failure to name-check Black Lives Matter. They hike up the prices and sell it back to people of color. Conlon apologized for his abusive conduct. And in 2020, Fat Rice... In 2015, the most beloved restaurant in all of Chicago closed its doors forever. Not because anybody objected to the taste of the food, but because the hashtag was not added appropriately and because former employees said he was a mean boss. Yeah, not even. I mean, the New York Times admitted in that piece that the the conduct he was accused of is routine in this industry. And maybe it shouldn't be, but it is. By their own admission, it wasn't what did him in what did him in was the accusation that his restaurant, which specialized in food from, I think Macau, which was a Portuguese colony in China um, was culturally appropriative that he was stealing from these cultures that he was uh, not only uh, endorsing through this, this very well-received food and popularizing and making into something that could be a a cultural, cultural fair and and a artistic product. Um, this individual who we're talking about, one of the people who led this charge, you know, he said, I don't, I, I wouldn't have, I don't, I know I wouldn't have allowed him to reopen. Um, not because of his behavior, but because he had committed a cultural crime. The same thing could be said of a, a guy who, um, had a very popular chain of, uh, Thai restaurants, Pak Pak. Um, he could not endure the, the outrage, the, the scrutiny that was foisted upon this very popular, very lucrative restaurant chain over the fact that he was white. Now, the guy studied in Southeast Asia for decades. He was a recognized expert in his field, including by South Asians. I, I, you know, I, there's something you know, there's a couple of things that, that dovetail with this. There's another guy who was um, who is uh, Skip Bayless's brother, who runs a, a Mexican restaurant chain who cooked for the Mexican president, Felipe Calderon, when he visited the United States. And these guys are all under attack for being born into the wrong skin and for having a vocation that is not evocative of the status into which they were born. That's a theme that picks up very, uh, very uh, in the subsequent chapter on fashion and athletics. Um, that status that you're supposed to exude in, in the form of sumptuary laws and in the form of uh, uh, religious convictions and congregates who ascend to congregational membership within the church in the 16th and 17th centuries is all very evocative of puritanical thinking. In this particular case, the uh, self-deprivation in the food world um, to which we're supposed to uh, submit is evocative of a sort of theory advanced by Jeremiah Burroughs, who is a prominent uh, puritanical author, and Cotton Mather, who articulated that by loathing himself continuously, by being very sensible of his loathsome circumstances, a Christian does what is very pleasing to God. So you have to have a certain amount of insecurity and self-hatred in order to submit to the kind of religious uh, devotion that you're supposed to display. And that's most prominent in this chapter at the very end, Abe, which I think you want to go off on, and this organization, Race to Dinner, um, which is Race to the number two dinner. And the whole organization is designed around the idea that um, well-meaning, liberal, progressive white women will submit to ruining their meals by paying upwards of $2,500 to invite these people over to their homes for a, a dinner in which they are berated over their racism and forced to explore their uh, otherwise unexplored un, uh, racial hatreds, animuses, bigotries. This is not a pleasurable experience. It's not supposed to be a pleasurable experience. Your meal is supposed to be ruined with the ever-present understanding of what a terrible human being you are and always will be. This is the essence of this movement, and it's also why the joyless puritanical experiment didn't survive for very long in, Amer- in, in American history. It was a very short-lived 
thing. It has a very long tail life in part because it taps into so many of these very human impulses uh, toward uh, religiosity and piety and demonstrating your own virtue in as public a fashion as possible, usually by sacrifice and sacrificing things that other people find enjoyable and that you find enjoyable. Abe. Well, what I love about the issue of racist food is that it is the ultimate limousine liberal issue because where are all these chefs and restaurants that have these supposedly culturally appropriative menus? They're in liberal hipster cities, right? I mean, this is, this is the stuff of this, this is, this isn't what you encounter in abundance in, uh, in, in flyover country, you know, these are like the restaurant, like Fat Rice is in Chicago. Uh, these are on the coasts. So it's, it's sort of another example of um, them eating their own. Well, right. yeah, well, I mean, I... They, they do eat their own, but they also eat others with a fair amount of regularity. I mean, it, it, they're focusing their, their attentions mostly on people who are inclined, inclined to agree with them on a theoretical, philosophical level. Uh, and those are the people that are most likely to bend and genuflect to the movement and lend it authority and, and, and power. But they do train their fire outside outside their uh, particular areas uh, uh, out, on people who don't agree with them. Usually when they do that, they lose. So they tend Right. To- well, that's the important point, because the whole point is, why did Fat Rice close? We don't know Abe Conlon. I don't know him. We don't know what he's like. We don't know what the guy who run, ran Pac Pac, what his life was like and all of that. But um, they lived and worked and, and, uh, and were parts of communities that grew viciously hostile to them. And rather than live in ostracism, they gave up their livelihoods or said, I can't really handle this. If you come from a place in which that is not going to be the general tenor, you're not going to face the same set of choices. I think that's Abe's point, is that wokeness always destroys people who are woke adjacent. It has very little impact, or or it creates the counter-response among people who are not woke adjacent. Yeah, we did. Which is the story, yeah. Well, we talked about um, Rick Bayless, who's Skip Bayless's brother, who's one of the most famous Mexican food preparers in the country just happens to be white and has been uh attacked for it quote just google rick bayless and appropriation and you'll get plenty to feast on from npr um don't ever google anybody in cultural appropriation it's a terrible uh, it's not something that you should do for fun it's a bad hobby um but there was also one episode in which um uh who's the fan gordon ramsay gordon ramsay was was Come, came under this line of fire for a restaurant in London called Lucky Cat. It was an Asian-inspired uh, restaurant. And this, you know, the whole campaign was leveraged uh, against him for cultural appropriation and also for having a head chef in this restaurant who was white, who was not Asian himself. And they demanded that he be removed and replaced with somebody of proper ethnicity, uh, to which the uh, very famous chef simply replied that he does not discriminate in his hiring practices, doesn't expect anyone else to do so. It was a very effective rejoinder. And that was the end of that. So there is much logic to this movement. It is very emotional. And that's why there's a heavy element of religiosity to it, which I tap into. Again, this, I haven't said this before, but this book is not an attack on Puritanism per se. Um, Puritanism's ideals uh, remain with us uh, for a very good reason. Uh, our, our, the democratic experiment, our institutions and democratic governance originated, arguably, I would argue, at the puritanical experiment. They were righteous. They were abolitionists. They uh, had a profound impact on uh, American political and, and social development and still do. Um, but they were also fanatics and they were totalitarian. They were, they were democratic totalitarians. These two things can exist simultaneously. They had democratic conventions but those democratic conventions ensured an absolutely perfectly homogeneous social contract. And that's what the modern Puritan wants, homogeneity in all forms of expression and public behavior. Anyway, that's Noah Rothman's You Are What You Don't Eat. Really delightful essay. 
despite its grindingly serious themes and and the fact that it evokes the very crushing morosity with which we are so associated daily uh, but the ultimately, thank, you, Noah, um, thank yeah. you. One more thing. Ultimately, the goal of this book, if there is a goal of this book, is to give you permission to laugh at these people because they're hilarious. They are hilarious, and there's way more. There's stuff in this book about comedy and the and and how the wokest thing you can now do in comedy is not be funny because being <laughs> funny is counter revolutionary, and a lot of other stuff. That's the rise of the new Puritans by Noah Rothman. Go to Amazon and pre-order it right now or be square and then go to commentary.org and read his essay, which is one part of one chapter of his book. And if you don't subscribe to commentary, now is the time because we got, we got 70,000 words of content for you to enjoy this summer. And it's time for you to pony up. If you listen and if you read, it's time for you to help pay for the podcast by subscribing. It's time for you to help pay for the magazine by subscribing. And it's time for you to pre-order Noah's book. And I can see your IP uh, addresses. I know you haven't pre-ordered yet. I'm watching you. There we go. Okay. Anyway, we thank Dan Sinor for his counsel on and guidance on Israel. I thank Abe for being Abe. And for Abe and Noam John Bonhoritz, keep the candle burning.